Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. This book is amazing. It is called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Let me welcome journalist and author, Mr. Richard Kreitner. Hi, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. I erroneously called you professor. Uh... But I, I, you know, anybody that spends this much time with a topic and is able to masterfully break it down the way you have, I guess you, you know, you are teaching and thank you. Um, Before we get into chapter and verse of this divided country, what what drew you to even write this book? Yeah, well, I was a um, editor at The Nation magazine um, in late 2014, early 2015, just after um, the Democrats lost control of the Senate and it kind of seemed like Barack Obama's presidency was over. And I, like many people, you know, of my generation, I came of age to vote in 2018, in 2008. So I voted for Obama and thought I was getting world historical change. And all I got was this lousy t-shirt, you know? Um, And I just kind of thought, you know, what kind of country would we need in order to see the kind of change that I thought was absolutely required, you know, and it seemed to me maybe a smaller one, maybe the country's just too big, maybe we shouldn't be fighting over everything in Washington, D.C., you know, in one place, have to get it through the House and the Senate and whatnot. Um, so then I got interested in what would happen if we broke it down into some kind of smaller piece, you know, and I wasn't yet ready to write like a manifesto on that subject, I'm still not, um, but I was interested in the history of the idea, who else had had the idea of secession or disunion. Of course, I knew about the Confederates. I'm interested in them, but I'm not too interested in them um, as kind of a political model. I was interested in anybody, you know, with kind of noble politics, similar to my own, um, noble in my mind, um, progressive politics, um, who supported such an idea. And I, you know, I quickly landed on the abolitionists um, who before the Civil War supported uh, secession from the United States to protest and ultimately undermine slavery. And that alerted me to the possibility that there were other people throughout history. So I went back to the very, very beginning, the pilgrims, you know, who were known in their time as separatists because they wanted to separate from the Church of England. And that's why they came to the United States. So right there at the very beginning of our founding is separatism and secession, you know, and then I wanted to trace the idea right up to the present and kind of add it all up and and see what it came to. So this notion of the United States of America has never been a true you know, when they say we hold these truths to be self-evident, there's never been a truth about e pluribus unum. It's always been divided, right? So yes. why don't we teach this in school? Why do we teach the mythology of this one nation under God, indivisible, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, when that has never been the case? At that time that they said that, they were holding people in bondage, they were indigenous servants, they were uh, native indigenous people who were being murdered and sent across to live someplace else. Uh, Chinese people who could not become citizens, couldn't bring a wife, couldn't reproduce in this country, Japanese, you know, it's like, it's never been that. Why don't well, not only have we never been equal, but we've never even been united. The, there's an amazing backstory that, as you say, we've ne- we're never really taught in schools or in like our public media at all about the name, the United States of America. So it's kind of a weird name. You know, it's not like Russia or France. It's not like an actual name. It's kind of a claim that we are something that even the guy who came up with the name knew that we were not. His name was John Dickinson. And he's people from, you know, who have seen the 1776 musical, which is kind of being 
um, brought back on Broadway right now will know his name. He is the one who coined the term United States of America. He also coined the slogan, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. And he's the one guy at the Continental Congress uh, in Philadelphia in July of 1776 who voted against the Declaration of Independence. And his reasoning was that the country was not united enough to stand together. And eventually we would divide and fall and break off into a whole civil war. And he thought that we shouldn't declare independence so long as we hadn't come to some kind of lasting compromise or agreement about what would define us as a nation. Um, and so it's very ironic that he's the one who gave us the name, the United States of America. Um, and it's, as you say, it's never really been true. You know, people talk about make America great again. Well, well, when was it ever great? Well, when was it ever really united? There's really no time where we've been together as a country and nobody has been excluded from the polity. Let's, let's go back to John Dickinson. What inspired him to come up with United We Stand, Divided We Fall, and United States of America? What was the story behind that? Claim. Well, he was kind of one of the, the older uh, generation of revolutionaries had, who had kind of been in the fight with Britain since 1765 and the Stamp Act crisis. But he was also a conservative. He was trying to protect his own property. He was a slave owner um, in so, Delaware. Well, pause. I just a point of reference on this show. We call people enslaved. Something happened to them. Slaves makes it a very like it's 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 uh it's not, they were people, they were human beings that, that got of thrown into a system. So I'm just, you know, language is important, you know. Um, well, what, do you, what do you call, what do you call somebody like Dickinson who claims ownership? Uh, we call him a, an enslaver. <laughs> he's a, oh. he's an enslaver. Yes. He's, okay. Yes. So he was an enslaver yes. and he was basically, he was like a, a reactionary conservative as well as a revolutionary, strangely enough. Um, and he was interested in keeping the revolution from going too far. So he wanted the country to be united, but he kind of knew that it wasn't. And the reason, the way in which he came up with the name was that he was in charge of drawing up America's first constitution, the Articles of Confederation. And he was given that job precisely because his colleagues in the Continental Congress knew that he had his doubts about the viability of such a union. Um, and it was kind of, I don't know if they were just punking him or what and giving him that job, um, but it, they put him kind of in the hot seat to drop this constitution. So he votes against the Declaration of Independence, kind of drops the constitution on, on their desks and leaves Philadelphia because he's not really on board with, with what they were doing. I think about, he was one of the wealthiest people in the world, primarily because of those human beings that he owned, I'm sure, I'm sure, and land, I'm sure, you know, when we think about this country's foundation, um, it's wealthy landowners, mostly people who owned other human beings as their source of wealth, who founded this country. Who was the person that pushed through uh, John Dickinson, grabbed onto this and did it in spite of him predicting rightly that the country would be divided and maybe uh, entering into civil war? Who were the, the people that were like, nah, that's not going to happen. Let's take these slogans and let's run with them. Who created the nation? I mean, it was a coalition of several different groups from New Englanders like John Adams, you know, who had their own kind of economic interests apart from slavery for, for wanting, you know, America to be independent. And of course, you know, enslavers in Virginia and, and elsewhere in the South who had their own reasons, including fear of insurrections. Um, to, to establish an independent country with a strong national government. Um, but those, those different interests that had formed a very loose and possibly temporary coalition to push through independence immediately turned against one another as soon as the 
revolution was over. And, you know, there's almost a civil war in America in the 1780s. Another thing that we're not really taught too much in schools, you know, we're taught that the Articles of Confederation, the first constitution kind of failed because it was too weak. But there's a whole different story out there that America actually almost fell into a second revolution or civil war um, over many, many issues, including the interests of enslavers and those who criticized slavery. Um, so, you know, these those tensions have been there right from the very beginning. The book is called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. What was the biggest shock for you? Not just, you know, because the more perfect union, uh, the the united we stand, divided we fall, very <laughs> shocking. Uh, what what was the most shocking for you as you were researching for this book? I think, it would, I think it would be all the different moments where it actually very nearly did break apart. You know, a lot of people like reviewing the book were, were pointing out, well, that's all very interesting, but we ultimately did stay together. And I say, well, what did we give up in order to do so? What did we compromise away in order to do so? There was something called the Civil War in which nearly a million people died. But there's also all these other moments where secessionist movements in different parts of the country very nearly did succeed. Um, in breaking up the country. For instance, at the very end of the War of 1812, there was a Northern secessionist movement led by the Federalist Party, which didn't support the war the war against England, which they were still very close to culturally and economically, and wanted to secede from the Union. And they very nearly did so. They were actually meeting in Hartford, Connecticut to possibly you know, drop demands uh, that if they weren't met, they would leave the Union just when the war ended, rather miraculously, because America was really losing the war. Um, and if that had gone just slightly differently, um, New England very well, I think, would have seceded from the United States, possibly joined Canada and formed some kind of separate country. And of course, all of American history and certainly the map of North America would be completely different. I think a lot of people don't realize how many moments there were like that where things very easily could have gone quite differently. 866-801-8255. Richard Kreitner is here, uh, journalist, author of Break It Up. As we enter into these midterm elections and in 2024, we had an insurrection uh, at the Capitol. Some would say this country is more divided than it's ever been. Would you say uh, those people who say that are just ignorant? <laughs> No, no, I, I wouldn't say that they're ignorant. I mean, I think that's fair enough. I think that's not true at all. If anybody knows anything about the Civil War era, you know that there was a very long period of time, not just four years, where American divisions were more obvious, more violent, more, more. I almost want to say even consequential than they are now, you know, more fundamental. Um, and then there are other periods throughout American history where there's violence everywhere. There's partisan divisions, sectional divisions, racial divisions, bombings in Manhattan. I mean, you name it. You know, I think we're it's we're not really in an exceptional period. We're at a, we're at a period where I think that which has been repressed, pushed below the surface, is is rising back to the surface. People are realizing that we've got some contradictions in our country that need to be addressed, reckoned with, um, either reconciled or kind of addressed in some way. Um, before we can move on as a country. You know, I say at the very end of the book, we need to finish reconstruction or give up on the union entirely. We're, we're, we're kind of at the point where we're backed into a corner. You know, mm. are we going to be a multiracial democracy or are we going to be a, you know, white supremacist kind of reactionary utopia or dystopia, as the case may be? Mm. Um, I, I think those kinds of questions have been put off for about 250 years now. Um, and I don't know if there's going to be a, an, any further postponement of some kind of resolution uh richard kreitner if you are betting where do you you know 
as as you say that the white nationalist white terrorism white white power structure can't can't continue because it's a made up construct for power and at the time that it was invented it was about separating the indentured servants who were from Ireland from the Africans that they brought over in chains from coming together because that union would have dismantled the the system of the economy that was being uh that was burgeoning here right the whiteness was created to separate <laughs> people mm-hmm. uh, disenfranchised people from coming together it has now I feel like it's the last gasp of this thing as we have people who don't even know how to identify anymore you know because what does it even matter melanin no melanin we're all human beings experiencing either you know try strife or success or you know like we're all in this and the climate is going to affect all of us you know whatever happens with the climate affects all of us like the virus but even that became politicized and divided we found a way to divide around a virus so I don't know I don't know um where do you you personally feel we're going to land I mean, the virus is kind of a very interesting example of, of, of all of this. You know, that took political divisions that were intense before that happened and turned them into a very kind of dire and existential threat on both sides. You know, I think people who were in favor of more restrictions and, and caution saw, you know, their partisan opponents as a threat to their lives, whereas the people who were skeptical of all those restrictions saw the other side as a threat to their liberties in a very kind of existential way. So I think the coronavirus has certainly accelerated and exacerbated a lot of things that were already happening in our country to sort people into separate camps. Where do I think things are headed? You know, I always say like, I was born in 1990. I I would love to see a centennial of the country. I'm a critic of the country, but I'm also kind of an Americanist. I would love to like I'm jealous of people who were around in 1976 and, and saw the bicentennial. I'd love to see the tricentennial in 2076, but I'd be very surprised if our union looked exactly the same then as it does now, you know, without DC or Puerto Rico being admitted to the union, without one state or another leaving the union, perhaps the whole thing is going to kind of devolve into separate regions, which I think is like possibly a good idea, actually, mm. you know, um, like on, that that same, devil- on that same um, CBS Sunday morning, Oregon was it Oregon they did a piece on Oregon and how there's a part of Oregon that wants to move into Idaho uh, because right. of the politics and it was like uh, I think North and South Dakota should be one place they shouldn't have two states with two uh, senate senators each uh, I think a million people from Los Angeles and New York who are unhoused should move to North and South Dakota to change about like I think there should be a migration as well to shake things up. I think a lot of things can happen. Um, yeah, I mean, what's if the federal government started like subsidizing people moving around? On the one hand, that's kind of a frightening scenario, and things could go awry. On the other hand, maybe that's just the thing that we need. You know, I mean, but the reason why there shouldn't be two Dakotas is because of this horrible idea of equal apportionment of votes in the Senate, which goes back to the original Constitution is possibly unamendable and is really you know as founding framers or whatever at the Constitutional Convention 1787 predicted that it would break up the union because it would lead to such inequality in representation between the states. You know, back then, I think it was the most populous state had like something like 13 times the number of people as the least populous. And today that's 67 times. So a citizen in California is 167th as represented in the Senate as a citizen of Wyoming. You know, that's not that can't last. That can't go on, especially when there's just this long list of things that we need to actually pass legislation about. Yeah. Um, the Civil War, what was what was the um, breaking point 
what was the breaking point in the Civil War that led to the first shot? Yeah, million dollar question. I mean, I, in my opinion, I think it would be John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry is what kind of took the South from, you know, throughout the 1850s, kind of going from victory to victory. The Kansas-Nebraska Act opened up land to the expansion of slavery that would have otherwise probably not had it. Um, the you know Dred Scott decision, of course, you know, prohibited Congress from abolishing slavery in the territories. Um, so in the 1850s, it wasn't like the South was building and building towards secession. They were actually firmly in control of the national government. It was only with John Brown's raid and really the Northern reaction to the raid, which said, we don't like his methods, but something's got to be done to break this stranglehold of the slave power. Um, that I think is what kind of precipitated the crisis of disunion and, and precipitated really Southern radicals from breaking up their own party, the Democratic Party, intentionally losing a presidential election so as to give themselves an excuse to rebel. Um, pretty, pretty insane when you read about it, in, you know, in the history books. Um, but also, you know, not so different, I think, from the kind of insurrectionists that we see today who are like really ready for you know, for battle. And what does that look like? You know, I think people always, you know, it's interesting. There's a saying, knuck if you buck and it, or F around and find out, you know, I think it is a lot of people that uh, think they want something and then they F around and they find out this is exactly not what they expected. And yeah. I feel like this, this whole thing, it feels good to put on some khaki pants with a tiki torch with your, your other um, very tiny penis brothers and get out there and, you know, talk about people replacing you. That feels good. It feels like, uh, you know, camaraderie. Uh, yeah. But if you really had to live in a nation where you were the only people, in charge, I think you would find out really quickly that uh, you're not ready for work, <laughs> the work that is required of that position. Uh, it's good. Everybody wants to be a victim, you know, of something and somebody's taking something. But when you actually have to get up and work every day to, to achieve the goals that you say you want, it's a whole different ball game. You like the scapegoats. So I don't know. I don't know if they really want that work, as we say. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm wavering right now. Uh, Richard Kreitner's here and I don't know if anyone else is. I'm sitting on a, on a, on a fulcrum of let it all burn, <laughs> burn, 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 baby burn, uh, or fight to keep it together. I'm really, I don't know where I want to land yet. I don't know. Tell me about it. I, mean, I started, I started the project on that fulcrum and six years later, eight years later, I'm still there. You know, every day, um, you know, I, I, I would like to see us kind of summon the energy, summon the resolve to kind of go through this national renewal that we very much need. Um, but I'm also very doubtful that we have that kind of will to do so. You know, I start the book with with Walt Whitman reacting to the beginning of the Civil War, where he's surprised that people actually do want to work to save their country. And it was only the possibility, the fear of it all going away, of disunion, the realization that if they don't do something, it actually will, that spurs them to action. So it's always been my hope that as this crisis kind of cascaded, and again, like I started the book before Trump even came down the escalator, you know, and everything that's happened since then has only kind of exacerbated the crisis and convinced me that things are as serious as all of this, you know. Um, wait, wait, wait. So before there was, because I, you know, I was informed by the escalator ride. I was like, oh, he could win. <laughs> I was like, oh, this guy, but mm, people are actually gravitating. So it was Obama. Was it Mitch McConnell? Was it the, the, the house, you know, him losing the midterms? 
uh, his administration and losing that power? Was it, you know, let's make him a one term president where, you know, electing a black man from Hawaii with white grandparents and a white mother was so revolutionary to some people that they woke up and said, this is not the country that I thought I was going to live in. This can't happen. Right. And and what did they think that Obama was going to enslave white people? Like, I, I was like, what, did you, what did you think was going to happen by this man being your president? Um, was it just the affront of him being black? That was the problem. I think that was a big part of it, but you know, they reacted quite violently to Bill Clinton also, you know, which perhaps had its own like racial undertones, but there's, there's just a part of the populace that will not lose, you know, that will not, abide by being ejected from national power. And that's that's how you explain Bush v. Gore. That's how you explain January 6th. That's how you explain the Civil War. You know, um, they just will not accept defeat. It's their country um, and not, you know, not anybody else's, I suppose. Um, but for me, you know, it was indeed realizing that the Obama presidency had not really amounted to much. We hadn't achieved anything on climate change. You know, watching Mitch McConnell take away the Supreme Court seat was a big deal. It was like, this is a coup d'etat in one branch, one of our three branches of government, you know, was kind of a wake up call for me about how serious things were about, were about to get. Um, and then, of course, Trump, you know, becoming the nominee and winning was like, what country is this? Um, and then afterwards, you know, the next day after the election day of 2020, of 2016, the, um, you know, California secession started getting talked about. And we realize now that was partly Russian bots, you know, kind of pushing that forward. But it was also the leaders of the of the California legislature saying that they woke up that morning feeling like citizens of a foreign country. You know, this language of kind of secession or, or near secession was kind of right there for the taking. Um, and I think it's going to continue to be partly because it is our history. You know, the United States was founded in the act of secession. The crucial event of our history, the Civil War, was, of course, over secession. So I just think as long as things are not going well in our country, one side or the other is going to see this as a possible remedy. Eight six six eight zero one eight two five five. Richard Kreitner is here. His book is Break It Up, Secession, Division and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. You have a chapter uh, that is endangered by greatness. Probably my favorite. Uh, what, you, okay. what does that mean? And break that down. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, of course, I'm trying to kind of allude to, to Trump's Make America Great Again. But in the context of that time, it's a chapter about the 1840s and the Mexican-American War and this this period of imperial expansion. And, you know, you asked about what were some of my biggest surprises. I hadn't realized that there was this whole strain of American political thought. You might call it anti-federalism, you know, which originates in the debate over the Constitution. Anti-federalists were people who opposed ratification because they thought that it was going to create too strong of a national government and take away people's liberties. And that can go in a lot of different directions, you know, on the left and on the right, um, for good and for ill. Um, but in the 1840s, the way that that kind of political tendency took was opposing imperial expansion, opposing the, Mex the Mexican-American War as not only horribly immoral and totally unjust, but also as unwise because it would make the country so big and would cause problems such as, are we going to allow slavery to expand into these new territories, which did indeed end up breaking up the country. And there was this whole strain of thought really in the Whig party at the time that opposed expansion and opposed the war for that reason. They said a smaller country will be stronger. It will be freer. Ultimately, it will be more equal. Um, we not only have no right to go invade Mexico and take one third of that country, um, but we, we shouldn't because it will harm our own country. Um, so that's that's where that 
title is coming from is from somebody's you know critique of the war saying that if America expands, it will be endangered by greatness. It'll be too big and it'll, and it'll fall apart, which is what John Dickinson had said and is indeed what happened you know, about a decade later. Um, I recently had the thought, like, what if I'm just shooting from the hip here, but like, what if we just gave it back to Mexico? You know, Texas talks about secession. California talks about secession. Just get rid of them both in one fell swoop by annulling the completely illegal Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo from 1848 and just return one third of Mexico's land to its proper owners. I mean, a modest proposal. Mm. And what would happen to those people? And would they no longer be Americans who live there? They would be citizens of Mexico, you know. Huh. Mexicans are, are Americans too. We're all you know Americans on the side. Oh, of the, that is true, right? It's only the United <laughs> States of America because of John Dickinson. I'm glad I learned that today. Tell us, give us another story from your book um, that they didn't teach us and teach you or me in school that we absolutely should know. Good question. Um, well, you know, the colonial period is is kind of very interesting to me. Um, you know, going through the book, a lot of it's synthetic. You know, these things that people have written about the Northern disunionists during the War of 1812. They've written about, of course, you know, John Brown and things like that. Nobody had really stitched it together, you know, all in between two covers before, but had been written about. Very few people have written about disunion before the union even existed at all, which is to say the colonial period, which was a century and a half, the same amount of time more or less that it's been since the Civil War to now. So a very long period of time where disunion was the state of things in North America, not the exception. So who, but who were the people? You mentioned the pilgrims. Who mm-hmm. else? Who else? The Federalists, the pilgrims, the the people loyal to King George, the, you know, like who were the, There were people from all over, all, you know, Huguenots came and settled in New Paltz, Huguenots. New York. I mean, there are people from with all the, over With Europe. the funny hats, right? The funny the helmets. <laughs> Did they? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know more I than I do on Huguenot headwear. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were different people from all different parts of Europe. There were Scotsmen, you know, who settled in the Appalachian Mountains. There were uh, Swedes in New Jersey, where I, where I grew up. Um, plenty of Spanish people in, you know, early Louisiana and whatnot. Um, so they came from all kinds of different places. They didn't necessarily speak the same language. And they mostly wanted nothing to do with one another. You know, I, the, the first chapter of the book tells the story of the first proposals for a colonial union in America, William Penn came up with the first one, Benjamin Franklin came up with another one. And each time they proposed it, and they thought that this was going to solve all of the problems of, you know, defending against attacks from Native Americans, although obviously it's more complicated than that, um, you know, arranging trade, settling borders, things like that. Those proposals were immediately shot down because they because the the colonists at the time saw it as a threat to their precious liberties. You know, they thought union was a threat, not disunion. And so they they avoided joining together until during the revolution. It seems like there was no other option. But if you look at the colonial period, that seems to me like kind of the truth of the American political character is. Mm. Is that we fear and suspect union um, and, you know, the only thing we really have in common is the desire to remain apart. I didn't have time to read your entire book, Richard Kreitner, but I, I have it uh, downloaded and uh, it is called Break It Up, Succession, Succession, Division and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. But I read somewhere that we don't have an official language, right? Even though people want people to speak American, <laughs> it's like, speak American, speak English, you know, 
Um, I'm real fastidious in making sure that my students help me pronounce their names. I teach at Hunter College. It's, uh, you know, it's basically the UN students from all over with, you know, many different names that my tongue isn't used to. But I have to like even the the meta with the, the soft H or the soft T meta. I have to, you know, remind myself how to pronounce things. But I read somewhere that German almost became our official language. German. I've never heard of that. I don't know which moment that might have been. I mean, I know there were Germans in Pennsylvania in like Chicago and the Chicago area. There's a huge influx of Germans uh, in the Midwest and German, Germany, German became, I mean, to the point that, you know, the Nazi movement was by and large, first of all, uh, not just supported by America, but foundationally the Nuremberg laws were fashioned after our Jim Crow laws. And there was a large faction here in America that supported what Hitler was doing, which is why so many boatloads of Jewish people got sent back to their death when they were trying to escape because there was an alignment. You know, people don't talk about that division. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Um, Yeah. As well, you know, in addition to the Nuremberg laws, there's a fascinating book called Black Earth by Timothy Snyder, in which he shows that Hitler's desire for Lebensraum, for living room, you know, for for the German Reich or whatever, which is what led to his invasion of Poland and Czechoslovakia, was inspired by the American conquest of the continent. You know, um, he just wanted what America had had gotten a century earlier and through the same means, which is to say genocide. And Putin looks like he's doing the same thing. That's exactly what the book says. The book predicts. I mean, the book predicts that Putin is going to do that. Actually, it's an amazing book. What is it with human beings? I was just I was having this conversation with myself and with this audience. You know, the the notion that somehow I need to conquer and dominate and then put up a wall or a fence or draw a line. Uh, Our indigenous folk before understood that the earth, in order to survive, needs you to keep moving. You can't plant things in a row for many seasons at a time without turning the earth to sand which these idiots that came here and brought Africans here found out with tobacco, which I think was Dickinson's crop, uh, found out with cotton. You can't just keep planting the same thing. You deplete the soil. Our indigenous people with the buffalo understood the cycle of life and that moving around is really, you know, how we should be. You know, we shouldn't be stuck behind walls and stuck behind borders but we should be moving freely about the earth because the earth needs the tilling. It needs us to move around in order to replenish. Thoughts on yeah, that quickly. I mean, that reminds me another favorite story from the book and from my research is the way in which Benjamin Franklin's proposal for union um, that I mentioned before was inspired by the Iroquois, you know, the indigenous Confederacy in upstate New York, which had actually formed a union of five different nations um, that was based on consensus rather than force. Um, and, you know, was it was a great inspiration, not only for Franklin, but for other colonial, you know, intellectuals, basically, who were looking around for models of political organization. Um, so the Iroquois, you know, and indigenous peoples generally certainly have a lot to teach us. Well, you have a lot to teach us. And I want to thank you for being here. Drew McCaskill is back in the building. Uh, thank you for coming back in. And Richard Kreitner, I didn't want I didn't want to make assumptions on the air. So we were having an off mic conversation that I want to bring on mic. You know, there's a lot of uh, commentary uh, around Jewish people. And I didn't want to assume that you were Jewish. And I was saying to you off mic that um, didn't we didn't we already go through this and, it, it you know, fought a war and eradicated and then you know 
And now we're back. And I feel like the roots of the division, racism, anti-Semitism, it's like the roots just never get pulled up. The roots don't get pulled up. So it just grows and spreads. It must be appalling uh, when you were watching Charlottesville to imagine in America in the 2020s, people saying the Jews will not replace us. And then to hear uh, somebody that has 30 million followers, Kanye West, say something similar, you know, about the, the you know, and it's, it's the old trope of, you know, Hollywood and media and, you know, so how, how do you feel and how do we start to pull at this root and get it up? Yeah. I mean, Charlottesville was obviously extremely disturbing. That's where I end the book. Uh, Cause I was watching that in a hotel room in Colorado on my honeymoon um, and just like jaw hitting the floor. I can't believe this is happening. But, you know, in further reflection, especially a couple of years out, like it's less surprising to me that it happened um, and that anti-Semitism is still alive as it is, you know, my kind of my main problem is that there are a lot of American Jews who are in league with, you know, far right people like those in in, in Charlottesville. Or I I haven't seen it, but I just have to assume are making some kind of excuses for Kanye West. or are associated with people who he's associated with, you know, in, in kind of the Trump world right now is what's like really appalling to me. Make that make sense to me. Like Jared Kushner and Ivanka, she, she, you know, and then her father this week talks about, you know, the ungrateful Jews. (laughs) I was like, what? Well, your, your daughter converted to Jew. I'm confused by, I'm confused by it all. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in that case, it's kind of a contempt for American Jews. It's it's a contempt for the idea that you can have, I don't want to say dual loyalties, but, you know, you could both be American and be Jewish, or you can both be, you know, something else and, and be American. Um, you know, Bibi Netanyahu in Israel has the same kind of contempt for American Jews and for the diaspora. And when you add it all up, like, what does an arch Zionist like Netanyahu a Nazi like the guys in Charlottesville and like evangelical pastors have in common, what do they all agree on? It's that Jews should be in Israel and not here, you know? Um, And that's, uh, that's not my position. I feel like my family has done very well in America. I like America, as I was saying before. Um, And the American Jewish community is, is a wonderful, you know, institution or whatever Um, with a complicated history. I was telling you about my, my next book. Um, but yeah, I don't know what else I have on that except just, you know, profound uh, disappointment, I guess, um, that, as you say, here we are again, you know. Do you fear, I always felt that it could happen again. I don't know why it was my childhood. It would, it would traumatize me, you know, to think that people could be rounded up and put into ghetto, ghettos and then put into concentration camps and then get, you know, uh, either work to to death, killed, murdered, raped, um, gassed, put in the ovens alive or dead. I always thought it could happen again in America, right? And it has been kind of a driving force in my life, like to to prevent it. So it has happened. It has happened many times. It happened to Native Americans in this country, as we were saying. It's happening to people in China right now are being put in concentration camps, you know, not being put in the ovens as far as we the know. Uyghurs. But certainly, yeah. you know, Uyghurs, they're the Uyghur, the, the Muslims. And, yeah. Absolutely. It's happening in Ethiopia right now. It's happening in Ukraine right now. Um, it's, it's happened all over the world many times. But I thought it could happen in America. 
Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of these right wing people that we were talking about before, these armed insurrectionists kind of fold ideas of revolution and civil war and some kind of day of the rope, you know, type genocide into one kind of fantasy. Um, and that's what they see coming. I, I hope not. <laughs> um, so I think it could happen. I don't know. You know, at a time, I don't think anybody in 1920 Germany thought it could happen. You know, a time of massive inflation, scapegoating. I mean, the Kanye thing is just the normalization, the renormalization of, you know, the verboten, of, of, of you know, the forbidden uh, anti-Semitism of the past. Um, and then you have Trump coming along and at the very same time contributing to that normalization. It's, it's just creepy as hell. And um and absolutely worrisome. Where does it go? I, I don't know. But um, I think, you know, this is the good kind of unity would be people coming together and opposing racism, anti-Semitism, you know, sexism, transphobia um, in some kind of true from the bottom up union. You know, that's what we do need. It's always been interesting to me that um, that of all of the people who sort of um, who are marginalized in in different ways, right? That more than more than any of our other counterparts, it feels like um, Jewish people and Black folks are the most distant from that from that white supremacist iconography of you know the closer proximity you get because Jewish folks will will typically not be, ever be Christian. There's no there's no way to fudge that, right? And then, and black folks will, there's no degree of proximity to the actual whiteness of whiteness, right? And there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, people that can put on the, the cloak of whiteness in other cultures and, and Christianity and, and find their way into the fold. But our communities are so, diametrically different in that way that will never there's no there's no way to fudge it for for our communities in the same way that I feel like other minority groups get a chance to and I feel like we have to our communities are the ones that have to be on the watchtower at all times right like there's a desensitized uh, people become very desensitized to um, abject racism and police brutality and over policing they get desensitized to anti-semitism but you know there was sedition in the 1940s there were people armed militia people getting guns from the nra in the 19 in, from the nra in the 1940s and trying to like overthrow the government and they used anti-semitism and um and fear of black people getting um get, progressing too much as a galvanizing force for fear turning fear into action in in that way and i think that we just we forget the history part of it and we become desensitized or we let too many things go collectively that to me is part of the root. I don't think you ever get rid of the the root of the evil, but I do think you have to stand on the watchtower in a different way than we've done previously. Mm. Oh, you're you're muted. You're muted, Richard. You're muted. Richard Kreitner is here. Drew McCaskill. I was just saying and stand together on that watchtower, non-separate yes. watchtowers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's been, been 
to to your point, that's been the most disappointing. You know, you would expect I've I um too many people in this country who identify as being Jewish also identify as being white, and I said that's always a danger because at some point you won't be, and then what? You know. Well, that's kind of the story that I'm looking at in this new book is you know uh, a lot of American Jews, especially in the 19th century and especially in the South had the privilege of landing on American shores and unlike in, in, in Europe, being immediately treated as white, as part of you know, the, the ruling class in the country. And they still had to work their way up economically, but just landed immediately with a huge advantage, which I think is something that needs to be kind of, as a community, um, addressed, reckoned with, um, and possibly you know, repaired. Well, I look forward to you coming back and talking about that, Richard. Richard Kreitner, uh, thank you again. And I appreciate you, uh, the work that you're doing. Lowly editor at The Nation, also (laughs) journalist, author of Break It Up, Succession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. You'll be back. You'll be back. We got to keep talking. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.